Amen. It is, uh, it is a good thing uh, to be able to worship together. It's something I, I've just been missing even, just to be able to worship with our kids, but also to worship corporately together, to be able to lift up God's name here. Oh. But I have to say, I, I, I love getting to gather together as the church. I, I know I've said that before. I, I've said it a number of times, but it, it's still worth repeating. I, I love actually getting to gather here in order to, to be the church, to worship and to hear the word. You know, over this last year and a half or so, um, us as pastors, we, we've had to get a little bit better at, at actually preaching to a camera, right? We, we've all had to take a turn preaching in a completely empty room, and there's just one camera staring at us, and they say, okay, now go and preach. And, um, you know, I, people will sometimes ask, do, do you ever wish that you could do that full time? And uh, my answer is always, absolutely not. Um, there are some advantages. I will say, you know, if I need 10 more minutes to, to practice, okay, fine. You have 10 more minutes. It's not a big deal, right? If I get an intro all wrong, I can start over. There are some helpful things. But I'll be honest, the, the hardest part about preaching at a camera is not so much that no one's there. That's a little awkward. You kind of eventually get over it. The, the hardest part about actually preaching at a camera is the end. It's right at the end when, when you finish you stop, and it's just dead silent. There's nothing. After that moment, it's all just silent. And in one sense, that complete lack of response is the most difficult part of, of preaching to a camera. It's one of the most beautiful parts of being together as a church is actually getting that response. We can sing afterwards and worship together. We can talk with one another. We can encourage one another. We can talk about what God has been doing in our lives. All of that is so important to, to the joy of the Christian life, right? Joy that is not shared isn't complete. And it's one of the, the great, uh, beautiful things of being able to gather together. It's why it's such a priority to, to gather together as the church. It's because unless we're actually sharing that joy, it, it comes across not as strong, right? And this, this is true really in lots of areas of our lives, right? Consider Facebook, Instagram, all these social media places, right? The, the, the best intention of those platforms is to, to share joyful things that are going on in our lives, right? Why do people want to, you know, post a picture of their breakfast or whatever else goes on, right? Why are they doing that? Well, they're enjoying it. And the natural response to feeling that joy is I want to share that with others, right? It's the reason why when you go to a sports game, right? You cheer when, this, when your team scores, right? Imagine if you went to a Canucks game and they score and you just decided to, for yourself for whatever reason, I'm going to sit there completely silent and I will make no noise. You will, you will not enjoy that game by the end, right? Because part of the joy is being able to celebrate together, to share the joy that you have, right? It's why we gather together to worship. We share the joy of what God is doing in our lives together, in fact, that's really what we're going to see happen this morning in our passage. Right? We are continuing on with our series in the book of Acts. We're walking through this book little bit by bit. And for the past two weeks, we have been looking at this story, this interaction between Peter and Cornelius. 
right? You'll remember this was a big deal. This meeting was significant because Cornelius is a Gentile, non-Jewish man, and Peter is a Jewish man. There are centuries of division between these two groups. They did not talk to one another, let alone actually come together and eat together. And so Peter actually goes into Cornelius' house. He shares the good news of Jesus, and Cornelius accepts. He becomes a Christian. It's this amazing event, and everyone is starting to talk about what is happening. And so Peter wants to then share this, this good news, this joy, with the rest of the church. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning, but we're going to find that some of the reactions weren't exactly what he was expecting. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to find your way. Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 11, we're going to look at the first few verses. As we started last week, I'm going to invite you, as we read this text, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Please stand. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which, uh, in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit had told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave us the same gift, or gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you have been with us for the past couple of weeks, you'll, you'll know something, that, that this is now the third week in a row that we are talking about this interaction between Peter and Cornelius. There's an old story, and I'll I'll be honest, I don't know if this is a true story or not anymore. It feels like it's been embellished, perhaps. But the story goes that there was a a pastor who had been newly hired into a church. And so that very first Sunday, he, he gets up and he preaches a wonderful sermon on that Sunday morning. Everyone comes to him, says, thank you so much, really appreciated that message. And the next Sunday comes, and the pastor gets up, and he preaches the exact same message again. 
Everyone's kind of wondering, okay, what's going on? I mean, it was a good message. You know, maybe he just wanted to to use it again. Uh, Sure, sure, sounds good. And so third week comes along, and he gets up, and he preaches the exact same message again. And everyone is looking at him going, "Uh, you know you can preach something else. And the pastor responds, I will preach something else once you have learned the first one, right? He wanted them to actually be able to put these things into practice before he moved on. Now, hear me, it is not my intention that I want to, you know, hammer it over the back of your head to say, you know what, keep on going. We haven't learned this text. But the truth is, God has repeated this story now three times for us. In fact, I think God is trying to tell us this is important. In fact, in the entire book of Acts, this one story takes up more room than any other. Even the the conversion of Paul isn't, Saul to Paul, isn't as long as this. It doesn't take up nearly as much time, right? God considers this as an important thing. Whenever something is repeated in the Bible, God is trying to get our attention, right? There, There are four gospels, four versions of the life of Christ for a reason, wants us to understand. And just like the Gospels, right, which, which tell the same story but are going to focus and emphasize in slightly different areas, this, again, this story begins to focus us in a bit of a different area. Here, this, this is the, the same story of Peter meeting with Cornelius, but really it's looking at the response of the church. How does the church respond to this happening? In fact, that's really what I want us to see as we work through this passage here together. Right? The church is called to unity as we follow the Holy Spirit that the whole world might hear the good news of Jesus. Really, that's what we are called to understand here. And so we're going to unpack that as we walk through this passage together. But really, this whole thing is learning how does the church respond to this news? And really, it begins with the importance of church unity. Look back with me at verse 1. Verse 1 really kind of sets the stage for what's going on here. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Right? The news of this meeting had been spreading fast. This was incredible that, that Peter, an, an apostle, would actually go into a Gentile's house, eat and have dinner with him. That was something that was not done, right? Their food was not kosher. They were not supposed to enter into that house. But also that Cornelius had actually accepted the gospel and there were rumors that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as, these, as this message is going throughout the region, I'm, I'm sure different stories are starting to come up and there's a little bit of confusion as to what has all gone on. How could this happen? And so eventually, Peter himself has to address this, right? No one had talked to Peter yet and so Peter is going to make his way up into Jerusalem. Verse two says, Peter went up to Jerusalem And the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Isn't it so interesting? The criticism is not, hey, we're so glad that the gospel is heard and rejoiced and believed. It's, hold on a minute, why did you go and eat with them? In fact, what we see here is two 
sort of seeds of problem that are going to arise in the church from here on out. Number one, there is this sort of listening to rumors. No one has really talked to Peter yet, and so there's these stories going around, rumors that are spreading, and it's going to infect the church. Number two, we see parties being formed. We see these groups, there is this now circumcision party, something beyond the gospel that was going to define who they were and separate them from others. In fact, if you're familiar with with the New Testament history, if you know what goes on, you know the circumcision party actually comes back again. In fact, it, it becomes a big problem for the early church such a massive problem that it nearly divides the apostles themselves. If you remember Paul, he writes in the book of Galatians, he actually has to go and rebuke Peter because Peter is starting to listen to these guys and starting to kind of separate himself from the Gentiles, the very one in our story who went and preached to them in the first place. Galatians chapter 2 says, For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This circumcision party was a group in the church that wanted all believers to be keeping the Jewish dietary and ritual practices. They thought that to be right with God, you had to eat kosher, keep all the Old Testament rules and laws on all the cultural things. And Paul rebukes them in Galatians in really the strongest possible terms. Because their message was essentially that faith in Jesus isn't enough. That you need faith and something else in order to be right with God. And in one sense, you know, we, we kind of want to throw rocks at them. Huh? How could you get that so wrong? But in one sense, I, I understand where they're coming from at this moment. This is, these are brand new thoughts for them. They have to figure out what exactly is being said. Right? Up until now, it seems like that is what they needed to do. But we've looked at for the past couple of weeks, really, what this change looked like. Why is it that that no longer they needed to hold to all these Jewish dietary and ritual, you know, customs? Why did they have to do that? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's because when Jesus came, he actually transformed everything, right? Jesus created a new covenant, a new way in which we would relate to God. And it wasn't on the basis of what we could accomplish. It was on the basis of what Jesus himself had done. Jesus kept all the Old Testament laws. He had fulfilled all of them himself. And he had died to pay for our sins, risen to new life. So that anyone who trusted in him, anyone who placed placed their faith in Jesus would be saved. Not because they had done enough good stuff, but because Jesus had done enough good stuff, right? The whole message of salvation is that it comes through faith and faith alone. It's not that we had to do anything. Jesus accomplished all of it in our place. And so that means there were no more barriers, no more distinctions between other people. Everyone would come to God through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus had done. And the church is starting to figure it out, starting to understand what Jesus had actually all accomplished. But at this moment, it was still a pretty new thought for the church. And so they needed to hear straight from Peter what exactly went on. Verse 4 tells us, Peter began and explained it to them in order. Just as a bit of an aside, 
so many of the problems of the confusion in life, especially in relationships, will be solved if you just sit and talk with a person. They just needed to have Peter say, okay, here, let, let me actually explain, give you the whole story so that we're not running around trying to say, well, I heard this and I heard that and I heard this from so-and-so and so-and-so and it got passed through about eight different people. Go and talk to the person. That's what God calls us to do. Matthew 18, talk to the person. And so Peter begins to walk them through this whole story, starting with a vision of this white sheet coming down, unclean animals. God says to eat. Peter says, no. God makes this declaration. What God has made clean, do not call common. Tells him about the three men who showed up at his house, how God told him to go with them, about how God had sent an angel to Cornelius to call Peter so that they could actually come together and talk and he could share the message of Jesus. As he is beginning to share this message with them, verse 15, Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now here is a a very important point that Peter makes in this passage. He hadn't really made it in, in the last chapter, but here it is that he witnessed these Gentiles hear and believe the message and they received the Holy Spirit just as the apostles had on Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday back in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, tongues of fire resting over their head. They begin to speak in different tongues and languages and proclaim the good things that God has done. And Peter says, that is what I witnessed happen among the the Gentiles when they believed. Peter makes this point very clear because the unity of the church is going to depend on this point. Did the Gentiles receive the same thing as the Jewish believers? God answers that question resoundingly with yes. Even though these Gentiles hadn't kept the Old Testament law, even though they hadn't uh, eaten kosher, been circumcised, all the rest, they hadn't done any of that, and yet they received the fullness of salvation, that seal upon them, just as the Jewish believers did. I said this is critical to the unity of the church because if that had not happened, we would have some kind of schism, some two-tier Christianity. They're the people who are close to God, who are really fully forgiven, and then there's the rest of the people who kind of are forgiven or kind of accepted. And God makes it clear at the outset, no salvation, acceptance before God comes on the basis of faith and faith alone. It's not you need to believe and do something else. You need to believe in Jesus. Jesus has accomplished all of our salvation. In fact, Paul will write strongly about defending this unity together. Ephesians chapter 4, he writes, He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul would go on to say, we all share in one and the same Holy Spirit, right? God is not divided and therefore the church should not be divided either. The same Holy Spirit dwells in all believers and therefore Paul says, I urge you to maintain this unity in the Holy Spirit. 
right? It's a statement that's as much an objective reality as it is a goal and a command for us to follow. We are united in the Holy Spirit, so maintain that unity. Seek it, practice it, defend it. And so hear me, if we're going to say, how does the church respond to this transforming news that that salvation is going to come through faith alone, it means we're called to defend the unity of this church. We live in a very divided time. It is easy to form party lines on all kinds of things that are not centered on the gospel. It is easy to be swept up in all manner of stories, rumors, hearsay, and not actually talk to a person that we need to talk to. If we want to put this passage into practice, we need to be a church that is committed to not doing any of that, to doing away with rumors, to being and defending the unity of the church will say, I I will not participate in spreading those things. I will not participate in causing the church of Jesus Christ to be hurt. I'm not talking about covering up sin or anything like that. No, true Christian unity exposes that and brings it to the forgiveness that's found in the gospel. See, the unity of the church is vital to work towards because ultimately it will demonstrate the glory of God. Jesus, when he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross, says this about his disciples. He says, The glory that you, God, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. The glory that exists between the Father and the Son as they dwell in unity is meant to be reflected in the church itself. Why is it so important to fight and to work for, to defend and maintain? Because church unity, rightly done, glorifies God. The gospel actually brings us together. It destroys all the divisions that would hold us apart. We are saved, all of us, by faith alone. All of us are sinners, undeserving of his grace. And yet, by God's mercy, he has given it to us and we can approach him. The gospel breaks down those barriers and beautifully creates community and fellowship where none was before. Creates relationships that had not existed. It is a beautiful thing to protect and defend and to cherish and love. Do not create division. God has given us one Holy Spirit. Do not create division where God has not divided us. But instead, let us foster that unity of the church that we might display God's glory together and follow where the Holy Spirit is leading us. A united church is only a good thing if we are following the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see Peter leading the church to do exactly that. Look back with me, verse 16. Peter is recounting how the Holy Spirit fell onto the Gentile believers, and he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's whole point here is simply that the Holy Spirit had already acted. The Holy Spirit had already done the work long before Peter could get there. 
In fact, the church is always called to follow what the Holy Spirit is leading us towards, not try and say the Holy Spirit should follow where we want to go. Right? Sometimes we, we unintentionally get this wrong and we say, you know, I'm going to go do this and Holy Spirit, please bless it, instead of saying, Holy Spirit, where are you going to be leading me? Where are you leading us? God is the one in charge. Right? And we see this pattern all throughout this story. Right? God is the one who, who gave this vision to Peter. God is the one who sent an angel to talk to Cornelius. God is the one who prompted Peter to go with them. God is the one who worked in their hearts. God did all of these things. They were simply called to follow with what God was doing. And so Peter basically comes to the conclusion, my hands are tied. I'm going to baptize them. I'm going to baptize them because the Holy Spirit has already accepted them. I can't go against what God has clearly been doing. So the question is, are, are we actually willing to go where the Holy Spirit leads? Right? At the most basic level, to be a follower of Jesus means we follow. It means we follow what God is calling us to do. The church, we as Christians are called to follow where God leads and of sentence. But I think the question that most people have at that moment is, is the question of, okay, but, but how? How do I actually follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? How do I know it's the Holy Spirit and not just my own emotions or, or desires or wants? How do I know that I am actually following the Holy Spirit, that he is actually leading me? Is it some kind of mystical idea? Follow the Spirit? Right? What, what does that mean? What do I do when I go home? And, and here's kind of the first answer. First and foremost, most importantly, read your Bible. I know that sounds like the Sunday school answer, but, but we tell that in Sunday school because it's true. If you want to know what is the Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit going to say, why don't we pick up the book that he himself has inspired to be written for us, preserved for thousands of years, that we could actually read it and know and hear about who God is and his gospel. We want to know what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. Let's start by reading our Bibles. Start by actually reading the word that the Holy Spirit himself inspired for us. And the work of the Holy Spirit is actually to bring those things to mind. Jesus tells his disciples, uh, John chapter 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is actually to remind us what God has already said to us. In fact, that's exactly what we see happen in this passage. Peter, as he is witnessing what is going on, what's the first thing that comes to his mind? It's what Jesus told him. Right? Peter has scripture come to mind as this is happening. And so what, do we, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means we read our Bibles. I, I know that sounds simple. It sounds trite. And certainly we could talk about much, much more in terms of what it means, but it really starts there. Do I believe that God can give us a prompting in a specific situation to go and do something, even, even incredible. Absolutely I do. But that doesn't happen in opposition to what he has written. And maybe even more importantly, it doesn't happen in the absence of it either. Sometimes we get this idea that if we want to be really spiritual, we, we won't read our Bibles. We'll simply listen and, and pray and say, God, you, you, can, you can speak directly to me. 
God absolutely can. But he calls us to, to remind ourselves of what the word of God actually is. It's no more spiritual to say, well, I've stopped reading the Bible because I want to hear from the Spirit. That, that's a bit of a contradiction. Here's what the Spirit has written for us. It's why, as a church, why do we spend so much time talking about the Bible, reading it, actually trying to understand and unpack and apply it? Because we want to be led by the Spirit. Right? I, I know it's a little bit new. It's a bit of a newer practice, but why do we stand when we hear the Word of God, when we're reading it? By the way, we're kind of continue that. The reason is not, well, it's a good, you know, stretch break. I suppose it is. The reason is, I hope that if you forget absolutely everything I say, that you would remember the word of God. I hope that, that if you only remember one thing, it is simply to hear the text being written or read for us that we would actually hear what the Holy Spirit has inspired. My whole goal in preaching is not to say I have something to say, but simply to say this is what God has for us. We want to be a church led by the Spirit. It means we pay attention to his word and follow what he has called us to do. So where do we start? We start by reading our Bibles. Not just once kind of flipping through saying, well, what should I do? But actually every day filling his uh, filling your mind with what God has spoken for us. It's not the last step, but it is the most important one. Church is called to be united as we are filled with and following the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, the world hears the gospel. See, this is the result of what it means to be united together in following the Holy Spirit. It means we proclaim the good news that is open for all to hear. See, I love how this passage ends. Everyone is worried about what's happened, right? It starts off with, with confusion. Everyone's a little bit on edge. There's some criticism coming up. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The story of what the Holy Spirit has been doing simply silences all the criticism. Instead, God is glorified for what has happened. He is worshipped openly, and the church begins to proclaim the truth of the gospel that is for all mankind. Right? Here is finally, I'm sure, the, the response that, that Peter had been hoping for all along. This was what he had been longing to do, is to share the joy of what God has God had been doing in the Gentile people. And so now finally the church is together. They're unified. They're going to follow what the Holy Spirit is calling them to do. And so they rejoice and they praise God as they proclaim this truth. He has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Again, I love the language here. It's not that Cornelius was smart enough, clever enough to figure it all out, but that God had granted him the ability to understand and to repent and so the work of the church in evangelism and sharing this good news is partnering with what God is doing. Evangelism is the work of following the Holy Spirit's work. It's not up to us to, to, to break open people's hardened hearts, but rather to simply let the word transform people's lives. 
right? This is how the church is intended to respond. We are to proclaim this good news. And, and hear me, it's, it's not something we're called to do alone. Paul, when he writes to his student Timothy, says this about the church. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That last verse is, is most likely a song that their church would sing together. Paul kind of breaks out into worship as he talks about the church because that's really part of the purpose of the church is to praise and worship God. And as he talks about what the church is meant to do, he says it is a, a pillar and a buttress of the truth, right? It's, it's language, architecture language. Both things are, are parts of a building that actually hold up the roof. Right? The truth of Jesus is to be set on top of the church itself and proclaimed for all to see. Evangelism does not need to be a solo act. It is the work of the whole church together. We don't need to go out by ourselves, lone Christian, and, and, and transform everyone's lives. And actually, we do that together with one another. In fact, look back at verse 12. Just a little detail you probably might not have noticed. Verse 12 says, The Spirit, Peter speaking, told me to go with them, making no distinction. Then he says, These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Here is the apostle Peter, sent and commissioned by God to preach the good news, leader of the church, and he says, I'm not going by myself. In fact, I, I want to take others along with me to do this together. In fact, if you're a Christian here today, just think back. How did you come to faith? Was it that only one person spoke to you? For some of you, that, that might be the case. Praise God. But for the majority of us, it's most likely that we heard the gospel from many, many people. Right? Our, our moms, our dads, our friends around us, maybe, maybe a youth leader, maybe a couple pastors in, uh, in there as well. Maybe some co-workers had spoken to us. Whatever it is, most likely it was many people all sharing the good news together. Evangelism is intended to be a corporate thing. That doesn't mean that, that it's only here on Sunday mornings, you know, when someone gets up and, and shares what Jesus has done. That's the only time we do evangelism. No, no, no. Please go talk to your coworkers, talk to your neighbors and those around you about the good news of Jesus, and then introduce them to more and more believers. Actually, it doesn't have to be just us alone, but instead say, hey, have you met my friend? Right? The question is more, how do I get my neighbor to, to meet more people from church? How can I show them that the community and the fellowship, the unity that displays God's glory that exists in the church? How do we display that as we go and share this good news? Evangelism does not need to be a solo act. The church is to be united as we follow the Holy Spirit so that the world might hear. Jesus commissions his disciples. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
There is no person here who can do that on their own. Not Peter, not Paul, not you and not I. We are meant to work together as the church takes on the mission that God has called us to. We can preach the gospel of Jesus for all to hear. See, that's what it means to be the church on mission. We set aside those things that would divide us. Instead, we are united in the one Holy Spirit that God has knit us together and put aside those things that would distract us. We follow where the Holy Spirit is leading us as we know his word and follow along as we proclaim this good news of Jesus. The salvation of Jesus to the ends of the earth. His death and resurrection for our sins have been paid for, open to all who would believe. That is what we get to do, and we get to do so together. The church of Jesus is a beautiful thing, so let us showcase the glory of God together. Join me as we pray. Father, I am so, so grateful. Lord, you have not left us to ourselves. Father, your Holy Spirit indwells us, leads us, guides us, even gives us the words to speak as we would proclaim the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray, would we commit ourselves that we would not cause division, that we would not divide your people, but Father, that we would work to unify us together, that we would be following after your spirit and showcasing the glory of God. Father, I pray, work amongst us here today. Give us boldness to go out, to share this message of that there is no distinction. Father, I, I pray, Challenge us, give us those opportunities by your Holy Spirit, prompt us, and allow us to share this good news with those around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.